incredibly satisfying though. I was born at home, literally, with maybe some like midwives, and it was a mess, I'm sure. Welcome to the DL Presents Babylon Berlin. This is a deep dive companion podcast to the German television series Babylon Berlin. I'm Dan Fenner, joined as always by a woman whose services normally you'd need to pay $5 to the butcher for, and then $5 when you leave, Leslie Leak. Well, hey folks. Each episode of the podcast will cover one episode of the show. We'll give you the down low on the plot, the characters, and the history. But be warned, the DL Presents is not for the languid of mind or the young in age this podcast and the media it covers is BAFA. By adults for adults. But if you're ready to go elbow deep in the Muti special, or walk in on the Ritter family's domestic violence, then you're ready for the DL. So drink your libations, and don your lederhosen, Doritos Locos, Dan Levy, let's dive in! Those of you at home, you just missed Dan tongue-diddling his sippy cup of wine. We are drinking out of sippy cups, ladies and gentlemen, for episode three because we are in a brand new studio and there is wall-to-wall carpeting and acoustic stuff everywhere and I don't want to get red wine on it. Um, Episode three of the show, though, really cooks. Wowza. Not only do we see Kartikov's bare ass way more than I ever thought we would need to, but we also get to know a lot of the characters we've already been introduced to more intimately. I feel like the first two episodes was just a non-stop blitz of being introduced to new people and, and trying to recognize a bunch of faces. And now in episode three, there's some serious character development. Even just three episodes in, I feel like I know some of these people and some of the relationships between them are, are forming and some of them are cracking apart. Episode three is also where the show starts to get more political, which is what I'm into. <laughs> you can't see me, but I'm like, you know tapping my fingers together like an evil villain. I love the politics in this show. Give us an evil laugh. <laughs> I love I love the political plots. That's the best evil laugh I've ever heard. Yeah, I uh, didn't hate Kardikov's bare ass. It was a great open to the show. But it was almost like a like a filler episode for me. It wasn't until I watched it a second time that I realized that the directors very intentionally plant some seeds that they are going to let grow throughout the whole show and it's going to come together later. This is definitely a watch twice episode. This is a watch twice. I got way more out of it the second time. Maybe I was just like visually distracted the first time because there's so much going on. But there are great plot points being developed here and also just some wonderful place and time. 1929 Berlin little nuggets dropped all throughout that we'll get to in the plot synopsis, which I guess brings me to the next part, which is the the order of the show today. As always, we will be going through scene for scene the entirety of episode three for Babylon Berlin in our synopsis portion of the podcast. During the second segment of today's podcast, we're going to go over a little more history and context pertaining to the Weimar government, the interwar years democratic government that's in play in Germany during the show, and why they were maybe so self-conscious about the possibility of revolution. Turns out there were a lot of attempted revolutions. And as always, in the third part of this show, we'll give you some tantalizing tidbits, some juicy morsels, some Leckerbissen. Today, we'll talk about Gustav Moller's song that features at the end of this episode. We'll give you an overview of the boroughs of Berlin. Sounds delicious. 
Leslie, do you hear that drum solo? You know what that means. Uh, but I haven't washed my hands. I might give Mooty a disease. Ooh, no, no, no. I mean, we're ready for the plot synopsis of Babylon Berlin, episode three. Oh. Roll your sleeves back down. You ready for me? Oh, I, I was born ready for you. I was born at home on the floor of a house that my family was renting, so it was a huge mess. Shut the fuck up. That's a 100% true story. Born at home. I can only imagine it was a gory affair. I was about to say I'm glad I wasn't there. Technically, I was there. Glad I didn't see it. Episode 3 opens with my dude Kartikov. It's dawn the morning after. He just witnessed his commie friends get mowed down at the print shop while he was hiding out in the latrine. He's had the good sense to strip off his shit-soaked clothes, so he's running around the streets of Berlin butt-ass naked, and I have to say that I really didn't mind it. Kartikov does not tan. That's something <laughs> I noticed about him right off the bat. Not a man who likes the sun. No tan lines. Ghostly white. But yeah, he swims out of the city canal, I imagine, or, uh, you know, a river in the city, having just washed his shit soaked body off i like though that this episode episode three picks up right where episode two left off you know we stay with kartikov so it's almost like the directors had binge watching in mind like they would expect that folks would be out watching episode three right after episode two so i'm glad they pick it right up where they left off kartikov attempts to steal a jacket off of a homeless person and i don't think that that scene was meant to be funny i found it hysterical the homeless man wakes up cuts kartikov with his knife kartikov scampers off to then be chased briefly by the berlin police which leads him to a bridge where he jumps off the bridge onto a coal barge passing by and rides off into the sunset but i want to give mad props right here to the foley person in this scene because the sound that he makes when he hits that barge will make your butthole pucker yeah, I, I feel like the Foley artist cracked a bunch of dry pasta and celery. It was like crunch. Brutal brutal. Crunch. Brutal. One thing about that scene I want to ask you, Leslie, is that Kartikov gets out of the river after cleaning himself, let's say, and he goes to get a coat from this homeless man sleeping on the side of the canal. Do you think that's Kartikov's coat that he wore there and then took off to go bathe in the river after throwing out his normal outfit, of course, that's covered in shit? But do you think it was his coat? He took it off to bathe in the river. Then by the time he's washed off and gets out, this some man has curled up in his coat to sleep in it? Or do you think he was just trying to steal a coat from anyone and this homeless man happened to have a knife and defended his own property? I sincerely hope that it's the former that some grimy homeless man just decided to curl up in Kartikov's coat while he was washing the shit out of his ears. Listeners, let us know what you think. Email us at thedlpresents at gmail.com. Was it Kartikov's coat? <laughs> we leave Kartikov for a minute and we move to the Anhalter Freight Yard in Kreuzberg, Berlin, where train number 528168-8 pulls into the station. This is, of course, the Russian hijack train from episode one. We meet back up with the Russian train conductor who gives his co-conspirator tickets to leave the city. So he's going to go to Zoo Station apparently in two hours and get out of town. The train conductor tells his co-conspirator he can be back in Moscow in about two days. Svetlana arrives at the smoky train yard and without anyone seeing her, she goes to the last train car, the one that was attached at the very beginning of episode one. She crawls up on top, opens the hatch, and crawls down inside the train car. This is the first time we see what's so special about this specific train car. And I love that this scene is told visually. There's no dialogue. Svetlana doesn't talk to herself or to us. She just gazes around at beautiful, lustrous gold. 
bars and bars of gold in these little chicken coop cages with little locks on them. I love the camera work where the point of view changes to be inside one of those crates as she sticks her dirty grubby fingers down onto the gold just to touch it. But Svetlana doesn't tarry too long with the gold. Before anyone sees her, she gets out of that train car and, let's say, locks it back, although that happens off camera, and she comes up to the train conductor himself. The train conductor, the Russian hijacker, is wondering where Kartikov is. Svetlana says that Kartikov is on the run from the authorities, and the Russian train conductor can already smell that something's fishy. German authorities walk up at that point, and they want to see the official paperwork for the freight on the train. The Russian conductor hands it over, and Svetlana has a little addendum. She's got additional paperwork to reroute just one train car to Paris. The Russian train conductor, knowing that this was not part of the original plan to divert the gold to Trotsky over in Istanbul, he kind of freaks out, grabs the train paperwork, and is not going to give it to the Germans. Svetlana pulls a gun, prematurely, I'd say, pulls a gun, and before she's able to shoot the Russian train conductor, the German authorities smack her hand down, and the Russian train conductor gets away. So apparently the German you know, train station staff also thought pulling the gun was a little premature because one of them calls her, at least in the subtitles, termagant, which I had to look up, I'm going to be honest, but it's an, it's an English word for like an overbearing woman. Oh, nice. Say that word again. Termagant? A termagant. 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 I'm probably saying that wrong, and that's pretty bad because it's English, but... If that means an overbearing woman, then, I mean, Svetlana is a termagant. She totally is. I love her hat, though. Her hat in that... Her little, like, clandestine outfit with the trench coat and that, that hat that is so emblematic of the time is amazing. And if I didn't know it was Svetlana, you know, it, like, hides her hair and all her distinct features, it's a good disguise. So Svetlana is arrested at the train yard, and she's put into a small holding cell. She asks... Who's the superior around here? Like, who can I talk to? And she's simply told that they'll come see you basically when they're ready. And then the opening credits to this episode roll. After the credits roll, we have a very quick scene that opens with a circle wipe of Kartikov getting his swollen, twisted, maybe broken ankle looked at by the driver of this coal barge. I think this is the first joke of the episode. The man who's running the coal barge says very quickly to Kartikov, Ugh, you stink. And we know that's because he was literally covered in shit just an hour ago. And he says, yeah, I got unlucky. The coal boat driver, not knowing what the hell he's talking about, says, no, you're, you're actually very lucky because your leg's not totally broken. It's just injured in some severe way. Yeah, Karikov really just, like, lets that one roll off his back. He's like, yeah, it's whatever. No one acknowledges any of the humor in the show. The characters are like, nothing's funny for me right now, buddy. <laughs> yeah, life sucks. But I bet Karikov stinks like hell. For sure. I don't think that bathing in the canal water in Berlin really, it's like maybe one step up in the hygiene spectrum, but n not a big leap. Yeah, it's not much cleaner. No. That scene with Kartikov is very quick, and then we cut to Gary and Raff in the neighborhood of Wedding, which is in the western portion of downtown Berlin, and he is at this nasty butcher, like an open-air butcher with little grubby mealworms and maggots in the meat and like barking dogs around. It really sells the idea that he is in a bad part of town. He's also being followed by someone we can't really visually identify. There's some trench-coated thug keeping tabs on Gary. And he asked the butcher to see Muti, the woman that he is, is trying to track down from his previous episode's conversation with Krajewski. And the butcher says, yeah, you can see her, but it's going to be $5 now 
and $5 when you come back downstairs. Garion puts down a little bit of money and heads up to see her. When Garion gets up to the second floor, Muti shoes her family out of the apartment and tells Garion to come on in and have a seat. Muti tries to get Garion to make a fist, and he's like, looking a little confused to me. I think he's naive to what's going on in this moment. He needs to make a fist because the Muti special is going elbows deep in Muti. She asks him to roll up his sleeve and, like, take his watch off. And when I first watched this episode, I had no idea what was going on until she put her leg up on the dining room chair and, like, threw a washcloth up underneath there to get things ready. And I was like, holy shit. I think that was Garion's cue to what was going on also because then he pulls his hand away. And I was like, listen, I'm actually here to talk to you about this photograph that I have or this still frame from a movie. And she wants nothing to do with it. She's like, get out of here. Like, if you're not here for my specialty, then, like, I don't want to have anything to do with you. But then he pulls his badge, of course. Garion tries to question Muti about the circumstances of the film, of the photograph that he has. But Muti doesn't have a lot of information to give or is, at the very least, unwilling to provide it openly. Garion really wants to know, where was this film taking place? And who's the other woman in the photo? Apparently the other woman is Martha Konopatsky, but she's of no use to the investigation because she has gone home to Pomerania. And as for the location, Muti can't offer very much. She says that on the way to the location, someone put a bag over her head, and all she knows is that they headed west. West of where? West to where? We don't know. She describes it as, quote, the west, which I don't know what that could mean in Germany if it just means west of her neighborhood of Wedding, or west of Berlin, or a country further west in Europe? No idea. This mention of the west got me really curious, though, so I started looking at a map of Berlin and then of Germany to figure out what would have been west of Wedding and what would have been west of the actual entire city of Berlin. The city of Cologne is west of Berlin, in Germany, so it could mean that she went all the way to Cologne, which would make sense in a way because we know that this photograph has something to do with blackmailing the Lord Mayor of Cologne. Excellent research, Assistant Inspector Leek. But then I got a little Google Earth search, and today's time on today's roads, it would take you five and a half hours to drive from Berlin to Cologne. I would presume it would take longer in 1929, and it just got me questioning whether she would have gone all the way to Cologne for this, this job. That is a long drive. Yeah. Not saying it wouldn't happen. It's possible. When we were thinking about this before we started recording, I was wondering if maybe she was taken for a, a couple days, you know, shooting a bunch of stuff because whoever was producing these films was making a lot of them. And when we see in the first episode, Garion and Thick Cop raid the porn operation, There's like dozens and dozens of reels of film, so I guess it's possible it was a long job and they took her a long way off, but seems unlikely. The one thing Muti does remember is the red nag, as she calls it, the horse painting on the wall in the back of the little photograph that Garion has. She says that nag, that horse, was watching them the whole time in the room. Like a, you know, a painting in a haunted house kind of thing. As Garion leaves the apartment, We see now a bird's eye view of that same open air butcher area that introduced the scene. And I love that cinematography. You see a little bit of blood streaming out into the drain. You see a little bit of water in the streets, buckets full of chopped meat, dogs on a chain. 
that kind of visual storytelling is really what stuck with me about episode three, just like Svetlana with the gold and the train car. There's no real lines to be spoken. There's no dialogue in the scene, but it says so much. And it also reintroduces the fact that Garion's being followed. In the next scene, we see our other protagonists, Walter and Stefan, and they're amongst a, a group of other police officers who are awaiting the arrival of their chief of police, Zorzabel. Zorzabel? Zorzabel. Chief Inspector Zorzabel. Zorzabel. I say Zorzabel. It could be Zorgabel. Or Zorzabel. It could be Zorgabelli. I do think there's a G in there, Zorgabel. Hot take, he's Italian. <laughs> Hot take, he's Benito Mussolini's left-hand man. Uh, Zorzabelli. Zorzabel comes out to chanting, finger-snapping, this, like, dog-barking sound, this very brotastic reception from his fellow policemen. And then, then he proceeds to give a speech about this May Day demonstration that's happening the next day. He says a lot of stuff, but what I took away, he says, we must protect our democratic constitution no matter what. He says these demonstrations the next day could lead to what he calls a chain reaction. Almost certainly he's referring to the possibility of a communist revolution or communist overthrow of the government in Berlin. Zorzabel tells Walter he'll be in charge of one division during these demonstrations and sends him on his way to the armory to collect his weapon. Zorzabel mentions they're going to be bringing in reinforcements from Spandau and Zeneldorf and that they're going to be dispatching officers like Bruno Walter into neighborhoods around Berlin where communists are known to gather. Neighborhoods like Kreuzberg, New Colon and Wedding. Pardon me if I pronounced any of those incorrectly. So you may have heard Kreuzberg, that neighborhood previously, because that is where the train yard is. So the Russian hijacked train pulled into a train depot in Kreuzberg, Berlin. And that's also apparently a working class neighborhood where communists are known to gather. Zorzibel says that greater than a dozen communist organizations are going to defy the city's ban on public demonstrations, and they're going to be in the streets the next day. So the police are taking preemptive action to harass these people. Thick Cop goes down to the armory to collect his weapons. He has a very quick encounter with Cross, who tells him that the general wants to see him. Quote, unquote, the general. But Bruno knows what that means. Apparently. Although we, the viewers, would not at this time. And he hands him a little matchbook for the Jotzi Cafe. Now, Bruno's selection of weapon is interesting. Cross lets the first guy in line know that he's being given a standard-issue, bolt-action German military rifle that would have been used in the First World War and 100 bullets. It's a Maus 98, made by Mauser. However, when Bruno steps up to the counter to receive his weapon, Cross offers him a brand-new, just-manufactured MP28, which is a submachine gun that would have been illegal to be brand new manufacturing in Germany at that time because of the agreements made after the Treaty of Versailles in 1920. So a little peek into the fact that someone is still illegally manufacturing submachine guns in Germany and the police and who knows who else have them. Bruno even remarks, 100 bullets, that's like being back in the war. Next, we get a really quick scene of Garion going to visit Graf to ask him to enlarge an image. Now, this might seem like a throwaway scene, but it's the start of a long-running joke for the series. Yeah, I was wondering if there's maybe even two jokes in the scene. The first and most obvious one is that Garion just opens the door to the darkroom while Graf is doing his important work and ruins all of his photo development. 
The funnier part that I didn't notice till I watched this episode a second time is that Gary busts in the door and he just says, I need a huge enlargement. And Graf is a little dejected knowing his photos were destroyed. And he's like, yeah, what of? It's a dick joke. I'm pretty sure it's a dick joke. Let us know your thoughts, listeners. Email us at thedlpresents at gmail.com. Was it a dick joke? Anyway, the camera cuts right after that. He just says like, oh, yeah, what do you need enlarged? Next, we're taken to Lottie in the basement of the Red Castle, who's continuing her work of cataloging crime scene photos. But serendipitously, she has a friend walk by who checks in on her, and she's able to pawn off this job on said friend after a quick little negotiation about how much she's willing to pay her. Charlotte single-handedly invents capitalism. She's got a job, but she doesn't want to do it. So she pays some other girl a little bit less than she's being paid to do it for her. Genius! I love Charlotte. Passive income, it'll change your life. It also sets up an interesting situation for Charlotte because she now has technically a job at the Red Castle. She has a legitimate reason to be at the police station, but she now has a lot of time on her hands at the police station, which is what she wants. A rare win for Charlotte in the show. (laughs) I think we can say that. We a need to celebrate win. that win for Charlotte. Yeah. Yeah, you deserve it, Char. She's written in my notes as Char. Char. <laughs> Pronounced Char. Char. We get a quick scene of Charlotte's mother, Frau Ritter, meeting with a lady doctor. She's been having some health problems. The lady doctor spills the bad news and tells her that she has the French disease, syphilis. There's also a bit of a joke in this scene, I think. Because Mrs. Ritter asks, like, what do you mean? Like, what is it, just this rash? And Dr. Volker, the female doctor, is like, oh, no, that's just a normal rash. It's totally unrelated. You put ointment on that. I'm talking about you're dying of syphilis. Maybe I shouldn't say dying, but, like, you've got syphilis. This is more dire than a rash. Yeah, she's like, forget about your rash. But honestly, it makes sense because Frau Ritter went to the doctor because of the rash, because her employer at the butcher shop won't let her work while she has the rash. And butcher shop is being generous. It's a slaughterhouse. The sla- yeah, you're right. Slaughterhouse. But yeah, you can't be working at the slaughterhouse with open wounds and <laughs> lesions on your skin. The important takeaway from this scene is that Mrs. Ritter actually has had an affair with a man who is now dead, and that's probably how she contracted syphilis about 20 years ago. The camera cuts to the next scene where we see Charlotte Ritter, and I think it's safe to say Charlotte has a different father than the rest of the Ritter family. Oh, there's one thing I wanted to ask about Nurse Volker. A man named Volker Kutcher wrote these books. Is there a chance that this character is named with him in mind? I'll do a little research. Well, I will say that I was doing a little bit of research about Dr. Volker. The actress who plays her is from Dan and I's beloved show, Dark. Excellent German TV series, and this particular actress plays a pivotal role in that series. Yeah, she's amazing. She's amazing in that series. She's amazing in this series. Fun fact about her, the actress's name is Jordis Trebel, and she was actually born in East Germany in 1977. So she would have been born into communist Germany, and it's maybe a little ironic that she is playing a socialist-leaning, left-leaning, not necessarily communist doctor here in the show Babylon Berlin. And while I was looking up her character, I did notice that Dr. Volker is spelled with a CK. Volker Kutcher is spelled with a K. Not that they couldn't be named one for the other, but slightly different spelling. It seems to be a common enough name in Germany that I guess you just can't think twice about it. I mean, even Garion Raff, the actor who plays Garion, his name is also Volker. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It's just like Tom, Dick, and Harry. Yeah. Although, don't name anyone Dick these days. Please tell me that's out of vogue. Richard. 
even that. I don't think anyone goes straight for Dick. It's first Richard, then, then Dick. Okay. <laughs> We've gotten way off track. This episode is sponsored by Red Wine. Red Wine. After Charlotte's mom receives the bad news that she has syphilis, we see Charlotte herself at home with her rotten, good-for-nothing brother-in-law and her sister Elsa. I would say tensions are high, times are tough, the brother-in-law's being an uber dick about how Charlotte makes her money. Charlotte's had had it. She's had it up to here, and she starts beating him up. The fight in the Ritter household escalates so quickly as Charlotte starts to hit her brother-in-law with what looks like a, a dried log that maybe they were keeping in the house for burning. The fight is only broken up when they notice that Mrs. Ritter, their mother, is just crying. She's had too hard of a day to deal with this right now. I love how raw this scene is. Honestly, like, it makes me wince every time I see it because it is so real. It's a testament to the acting in the show, the kind of claustrophobic space of the Ritter apartment, and just the sheer destitution that is going on there. The electricity, the lights literally go out on them as they're fighting one another over very little, you know, over very little amount of money that Charlotte seems to be bringing into the house, and even that is not good enough. It's also a a strong display of sexism, as you mentioned before the recording, Leslie. Yeah, because her brother-in-law insinuates he thinks that Tony, the little sister, should go work at the at the slaughterhouse because that's where her mom can now no longer work and maybe Tony can go fulfill her spot. And Lottie's like, she's in school. That's why we're working so hard is so that she can do better. Why don't you go work at the fucking butcher shop? And he says, that's women's work. I'm glad it's women's work because I don't want to work at a slaughterhouse. That's gross. But it's not something I think of as feminine in any way. No, it's, it is perplexing that that would be women's work. It's also a little strange that just two scenes ago, we saw a man very literally doing some slaughterhouse-esque butchering in the street. I think moral of the story is that brother-in-law is just a fucking dick. Brother-in-law is out of touch. After the pitiful domestic violence going down in the Ritter household, we get a quick scene of Stefan Yannick driving Balter to this mysterious meeting with the general. Meanwhile, the camera cuts to Kartikov's dirty feet, waiting outside Svetlana's apartment. He's waiting for the caretaker to show up. And when he does, he hobbles across the street on his injured leg and surprises the caretaker and says, Oh, I forgot my key. You've got to let me inside. And apparently it works. Kartikov is now in the house. But we know from earlier in the episode that Svetlana's not home. She's being held in a little jail cell at the train yard in Kreuzberg. The scene cuts back to Bruno meeting at the Cafe Jotzi, and we find out that young inspector Stefan Yannick has some skills. While Walter's meeting in the Jotzi Cafe, Yannick's in the car. He's got his binoculars up. He's watching this meeting and reading their lips as Walter has a conversation with some mysterious men. We see a couple key words and phrases come out of the conversation that Stefan is able to glean via lip reading. He hears the name or excuse me, he sees the name Foreign Minister Stressman being said. Now, Foreign Minister Stressman is a real man from the real Weimar Republic in Germany. He served in nine successive cabinets of the government, and so he was Foreign Minister for something like six years, so he would have been a regular fixture in the government. Stefan also gleans from the conversation that there's some sort of potential assassination and that there is a national affair afoot. We don't get much else other than that because Bruno ends the meeting and Stefan quickly puts away the binoculars in his notebook 
and he's just a chauffeur as far as Bruno's concerned. It's hard to tell because we're seeing this scene through Stepan's binoculars, but if you look closely, you'll recognize one of the characters in this meeting is the same white-haired man who signs the paperwork in episode one so that the train, the hijacked train from Russia, can come into the train station. Major General Seegers. Mm-hmm. So this is obviously the general that Bruno was told about earlier in the episode when he was getting his weapons from the armory. After his meeting at the Café Josti, we see Thick Cop come home to his wife, Emmy, who's just kind of staring blankly out into space while her oven starts smoking. So something's burning in the kitchen, and our poor sweet Emmy is clueless. Bruno confronts her about it, but ultimately he's just there to comfort her. She seems to have spaced out or gone into a stupor for reasons we don't really understand, and he just holds her hand. You see their two wedding rings together in the scene, and he says, like, it's okay, I've got it. Yeah, it's a soft touch for Thick Cop. Yeah, it is the first time we've seen a real soft touch to mm-hmm. Bruno, but it's good. And it sets up the relationship between him and his wife, Emmy, quite well for me anyway. It made sense perfectly that this guy is out on the town, rough and tumble, as a vice cop. But when he's at home, for this woman, and just this woman alone, he's a gentleman. They're preparing this dinner because Garion's going to come over for supper later on that night. But before we get the scene of Garion coming over to the Volta residence for supper, we get another very quick scene back at the Ritter household. This time, no domestic violence, but a little bit of verbal abuse between Lottie and her sister Ilsa. This is followed by the Russian train conductor who's hijacked the train coming into Benke's house. But he doesn't go in the front door. He can tell that he's being followed by two guys in the car. And if I'm right, they're the two Russian hitmen that shot and killed the Trotskyites in episode two. So they're on the lookout for, I believe, Kartikov or this Russian train conductor who's also looking to find Kartikov, and that's why they're at Elizabeth Benka's house. Because if you recall, Garion, though he doesn't know it, is staying in Kartikov's old room. That'll come full circle later in the episode. But in the meantime, this young blonde Russian is trying to calm Benke and just ensure her that he's just there to meet up with his good old pal Kartikov, but Benke is wound real tight and she is not having it, so she starts to freak out. She's about to call the police. And he ties her up and puts her in the broom closet. Meanwhile, Garion stops by Bruno's for dinner, and you see that there is a beautiful dinner spread out on the table. We have to surmise that Bruno went ahead and cooked a second dinner. He says at the dinner table that, oh, my Emmy has always been a wonderful chef and lavishes some praise on his wife who just kind of giggles and smiles and takes it. Garion is none the wiser about what's really going on between the two of them. But again, a sweet move by Bruno, a sweet move by Thicka. Pretty quickly, Emmy excuses herself and goes to bed after saying basically that Bruno never talks to her about his work and what he does at at the police station. Now it's just Bruno and Garion together for a private chat, which is something that seems like Bruno's been angling for since the very first episode. And he doesn't waste much time. He's like, what the hell's your deal? What are you all about? Why is it that August Benda wanted to meet with you alone? What did you guys talk about? Garion's not going to say a word. Conversation moves on to the May Day demonstrations, which are happening presumably the following day. Walter discloses to Garion that essentially the police's involvement in these protests, in these demonstrations, is pure harassment. 
yeah, he says they're going to search houses, they're going to question people, they're going to push people around, kind of an intimidation job. And he just lays it out there. He says, Garen, you're coming with me tomorrow. This is what we're doing. We're going to go push around some communists. Pretty matter of fact. Or suspected communists. I don't know. They're, they're going to go push around some... People in some poor neighborhoods. Working class people. Those darn poor people. They don't deserve it. After this, poor Gary needs a drink. So on his way home, back to Benke's, he stops in at a bar. The bar we've seen him previously go out dancing in with the cute, precious little 10-year-old barmaid. Oh, little 10-year-old barmaid. Love her. While we see him going to the pub for a drink at night, we hear him narrating a letter that he'll be writing to Helga. This Helga that we haven't met, but clearly Garion has an intimate relationship with. He mentions in this letter that they could somehow throw off the secrecy they're currently under if they could both start a new life in Berlin. And he asks this Helga to consider that. He mentions one more time also to say hello to the boy for him. He pops a quick vial of morphine and then hits the road back home to the apartment. When he arrives at his apartment at Ben Kay's house, he hears this pounding on the broom closet door and finds our sweet Elizabeth Ben Kay gagged and bound in the closet. Now, Leslie, I wanted to ask you about this. I know that it seems like the Russian train conductor tied her up, but we didn't actually see that happen on camera. It's just implied. It is possible, and I will theorize here, that Elizabeth Benka is a kinky minx, and she tied and gagged herself to play a quick little sex game with one of her new tenants, Gary and Rath. When he opens that closet, all things seem to be going as planned. What do you think? Uh, you know, no. Okay, I'll just keep that part to myself. I like this scene because uh, Garion goes to unbind her hands, and she says no, shakes her head, gets him to pull down her gag first so that she can tell him that this Russian is still in the building. Yeah, whoever did this to her is still here. In fact, he's in Garion's room. Garion pulls his gun and quietly opens the door to his bedroom to find the Russian train conductor passed out face down on the bed. He presses the gun to the back of his head, and when the conductor awakes, he thinks it might be Kartikov. He asks, like, Alexei, is that you, Alexei Kartikov? Him and Garion quickly get into a fight, and the train manifest, the documents that this Russian train conductor had stolen back from Svetlana at the train depot, get kicked underneath Garion's bed. But he doesn't notice that in the tussle, and before you know it, the Russian train conductor has jumped out the window and crashed down onto the sidewalk outside. He thinks he's going to make a slick escape, but he's being followed by the Russian hitmen. They pick him up off the street, cram him into the car, and start driving off. Garion runs down the stairs just in time to see the Russian train conductor break through the window and beg for help. Garion grabs him by the hand, but the car's already moving. He gets dragged a little bit into the street, and then the conductor is swept away in the night. Following this, Garion sits down for a drink with Benkei, and they start smoking cigs, taking shots, talking about Kartikov and their life during the war. This scene was so much more important the second time I watched the show than the first time. A lot of important information gets exchanged in this little conversation in Benke's kitchen. First, we get some information about Kartikov. Garion doesn't know who Kartikov is, but Elizabeth says he used to rent your room. He's actually a violinist and perhaps a good one. But once he got to talking, it was all politics and people would really pay attention. Apparently, he was a gifted speaker and very influential. Benke admits that though she couldn't understand a word of the Russian he was speaking, if he said jump, she would have done it. But importantly, 
Elizabeth says that Kartikov was leaving and therefore the room would be available. He said he was going on a six-month-long tour with a full orchestra on a cruise ship all the way to the Bosphorus. Now, the Bosphorus is a small channel that would allow you to travel from the Black Sea to the Aegean Sea. It's also known as the Strait of Istanbul, so it would make sense that he was going there. Istanbul, Turkey, where Trotsky is. Now, whether that was the truth, and that was Kartikov's real escape plan from Berlin after the train heist, we'll never really know, because those plans did not work out. But he left his violin behind. Yeah, after after Benke is like, yeah, he went on tour to play his violin, then Garion's like, well, then why the fuck is it still here? She's unconcerned. So Elizabeth says, oh, sorry, yeah, sorry about that violin, as if it just taking up space is the real problem. And Kartikov's one suitcase he left behind. She says she'll store those in the basement, and Garion says, I'll give them to you tomorrow. Obviously, he wants to look through them first. Garion also opens up and says that after the war, his brother didn't come home, and his mother couldn't cope with the fact that the wrong brother, meaning Garion, came home. So I think we are to believe that Garion's mother, at least in his eyes, committed suicide? perhaps? Maybe. I mean, we have yet to see her in the picture and won't for all of season one. Yeah, we don't really know that. But this is the first real personal exchange that Garion's been willing to engage in. He's certainly not trying to open up and get personal with Bruno or really anyone else. Even the young Charlotte, who knows one of his secrets, but, you know, only by accident, he hasn't really opened up to her in any personal way yet either. It's just Elizabeth as far as we know. Garion goes upstairs and looks through Kartikov's suitcase. He sees some flyers, some posters, some postcards, some advertisements and handbills for Kartikov and for Svetlana. I didn't put it together the first time I watched the show, but as early as episode three, Garion knows there's a Svetlana-Kartikov link, and it's because he looks through the suitcase. But that's the end of the scene. He looks through the suitcase. There's like nothing conclusive in there, and the scene cuts to Charlotte. After this, we get a series of short scenes in quick succession that essentially wrap up this episode's plot lines for the main characters that were introduced at first. We see Lottie at the movie theater. This would have been right after she and her sister Ilsa had a little tiff. She's watching a silent film containing two young ladies kind of having a nice day outside, but Lottie's crying as she watches the movies. I assume she was just lamenting the loss of her childhood. Yeah, and a broken relationship with her sister and pretty much everyone else in her family except for Tony. Yeah. Then we get a quick scene of Stefan Yannick at home, and he's trying to go to sleep, but he comes into the dining room because his parents are blaring the radio. Come to find out his parents are deaf. They convince him to sign whatever song or broadcast is on the radio, and after a little bit of resistance, he sits down and starts signing what he hears on the radio. So there's a little bit of broadcast about this May Day protest that's happening the next day. And then a song comes on and Yannick's resistant to sign the song, uh, but his parents encourage him to keep going and he does so. We get a quick scene of Kartikov in Svetlana's apartment tending his wounds, then back to Lottie getting into bed with Tony, then finally Sveta in jail at the train station. Sveta sounds like something you crumble onto a salad. Feta, like sweaty feta. Sweaty feta. Sveta. Sveta. That's her nickname. Well, that's Kartikov's pet name for her. I'm calling her sweaty feta, if that's okay with you. <laughs> we got thick cop and sweaty feta. <laughs> she does sweat on stage. Anyone would she under glistens. those lights. She glistens. Thick cop and sweaty feta. Will they or won't they bone? Thick cop and sweaty feta. That's got to be a no. 
I'm also thinking no. I just had to bring it up, though. So we, the audience, watching this succession of scenes are actually listening to the song that Yannick is signing for his parents. As the song comes to an end, we get one final scene of our blonde Russian chap with the thugs who kidnapped him in the car. He is chained and handcuffed to the floor, lying on his back, and he's being interrogated by none other than the Russian ambassador. The ambassador wants to know what the blonde Russian knows about this train situation, and after quite a bit of intimidation, the Russian gives it up and tells him it's Sorokin's gold. And that Trotsky is in Istanbul. Tells him the train was headed to Istanbul because that's where Trotsky is, and it is loaded full of gold. Sorokin's gold, whatever that is. And scene and episode. Yeah, the credits roll before we find out his fate. Ooh, Dan, do you hear that? You know what that means. Oh, it's finally time to discuss our theories about Elizabeth Benka tying and gagging herself up in that closet to play kinky games with Gary, and I'm down. Dan, quit projecting. It's actually time to dive deep into the history and context of episode three. So the show Babylon Berlin takes place in 1929, the interwar years, and it's mostly about people. I like the characters the best, but the politics are where it's at for me. It was such a unique time in German history, and I feel like even just in episode three, the show is shaping up to be a demonstration of how wonderful Germany could have been if they hadn't been dragged into World War II by the Nazi regime. They had this fledgling democracy, this early republic government that they had formed out of the chaos of the First World War, and it was pretty fragile, and as we know, it eventually dissolves. But Babylon Berlin gives this kind of unique pinhole view into what that time might have been like and what Germany's future could have been like. And that, for me, is is beautiful. It's sweet, it's sour. It's like Szechuan sauce. I don't know. But understanding what the Weimar government is is something I've never been able to wrap my mind around because you don't hear much about it. The only thing I learned about Weimar Germany in school is that they experienced hyperinflation. I, I We didn't even learn what years that took place or why that all happened, but let's get into that now because that definitely pertains to episode three and to the greater arc of all of season one for Babylon Berlin. If you recall, in this episode, Leslie, Chief Inspector Zorjabel makes a big show that the police need to take forceful, preemptive action against these May Day demonstrations that are going to happen the next morning. He seems to think that there's a communist uprising, like a left-wing communist uprising, similar to what happened in Russia, about to happen in Berlin. And he seems so concerned about this chain reaction that he mentions that he's willing to have police forcefully, violently, put down any kind of demonstrations the next day. That's not entirely true for 1929 Berlin, but it is an interesting plot point that is based in truth. Let's talk about Weimar Germany. So the Weimar government was founded in 1918. It was a federal constitutional republic, and it was formed, like I said, out of the chaos of the First World War. Late in the First World War, it became clear to military leaders in Germany, including Erich Ludendorff, that they were going to lose this war. And so they attempted to sue for peace, you know, take like legal means via paperwork to establish an end to the war and for peace. Their initial, you know, proposal for peace was turned down, but it was still clear to military leaders that Germany was going to lose this war. So the Kaiser was convinced to abdicate his throne. Kaiser Wilhelm in 1918 just stepped down from being the emperor of Germany and he fled to the Netherlands. 
Later on at the treaty, or excuse me, at the Paris Peace Conference, they tried to get Kaiser Wilhelm extradited to face charges that today we would call like crimes against humanity. They wanted to blame him for starting the First World War, but the Netherlands wouldn't give him over. So he basically got away scot-free. In his absence, a new government was formed in November 9th in Weimar in Germany, the city Weimar. The new government was proclaimed. Now, they didn't call themselves the Weimar government or the Weimar Republic. That was actually a term that was popularized later with Hitler's help in the 1930s as kind of a pejorative. It was a way of putting a knock on them, saying these were outsiders. They weren't even from Berlin. These were the Weimar people. At the time, they would have just referred to themselves as the German Republic. So this new democracy that was formed would allow all adult men and women to vote. So all men and women, which was pretty progressive at the time, could participate in this government. But you would vote for a political party, not necessarily for a candidate. So you'd vote for your party, and based on how many, you know, what percentage of the vote total your party received, they would receive a certain number of seats in the government, the Reichstag, which is like the equivalent of Congress. The Social Democrats, which are mentioned in Babylon Berlin, were the largest center party at that time. Now, before the First World War, they were a left-leaning kind of socialist party, but they were a very popular socialist party. Unlike other socialist parties in Europe, they hadn't fragmented into a bunch of smaller parties. They were somewhat unified before the war. But after the war, they had lost a little bit of their credentials, in part because they'd moved politically to the center, and they had supported continuation of the war in 1918 at least. But their high watermark was about 38% of the German vote. So in the early days of the Weimar Republic, they had the support of about 38% of the population. So they were able to establish a coalition government with other centrist parties, like a large centrist party called the Zemstra that uh, supported the Catholic Church and they were pragmatic and willing to work with other people. So you can imagine a large chunk of the German populace supported the Social Democrats, but certainly not everybody. But they had enough people behind them that they could form a government and they could form a cabinet. And that was true for basically 1918 all the way up through 1930. So this new German Republic was kind of a liberal place in Europe, especially compared to the close to military dictatorship that people were living under during the First World War. First of all, women could vote. And more so than that, women were in the workplace in a big way, like never before in Germany. So that was a huge social change, not for the least because so many young men had died in the war or failed to come home or were mortally wounded or badly injured as they returned. So there were women working in everything from industry to, you know, things that we might think of as male-dominated professions of the day even things like law, you know, and, and for Babylon Berlin's purposes, law enforcement. This more liberal society also meant that there was a place for sex workers, as is shown in the show, and also a thriving homosexual scene, at least in Berlin, maybe not in the countryside in Germany, but that would have been taboo in most other European countries at that time. There was also research, academic research, being done into human sexuality that was discontinued certainly during the Nazi regime, but was progressive and, and even kind of the vanguard for that field of study at that time in Europe. Also, artists and musicians and writers and painters flocked to Berlin in part because of this new liberal, I don't know if I would call it a revival, but this new move to the left, this new liberation and, and freedom that the German populace found during the Republic. And we'll get into this a little bit more in our tantalizing tidbits in our Lecker Beeson, but I think one of the subtle ways that the directors 
demonstrate this kind of new age movement in arts and culture is in the music that the directors are choosing to put into the show. We've already heard a song in a previous episode and we hear a song in this episode that would have been popular at the time and 10 years later would be banned. Some things in the show that we don't, I don't personally think of as avant-garde or forward thinking, like dance clubs, for instance, we don't think of like going out to a dance club as being strange because we live in 2021 America. But it was, it was definitely liberal at the time. And later on, the Nazis would outlaw that for sure. They would put a stop to fun times and dance halls. But uh, the, the one other thing I forgot to mention that was really thriving in Germany at this time under the Weimar Republic was feminism, a new, a new kind of freedom that women had, whether by choice or just by sheer fact that your husband never came home from the war. For the first time, I think, in German society, people had to recognize that there were single women in town with children and no husband, no man in the picture, but they couldn't just be considered some harlot and, and given a scarlet letter because it was very likely their husband had died honorably fighting for the fatherland. And so, yeah, I, I think a lot of people had to come to terms with independent women for the very first time in Germany, and that was a part of a huge social shift for the whole country. We've started to see that in the show in the first three episodes, and we'll see a lot more of that in following episodes. So the Weimar Republic and, you know, the cabinet and government that was being elected by the Reichstag. Reichstag. <laughs> Reichstag. They faced a bunch of challenges. Uh, as you can imagine, they came into power, these centrist parties came into power within the Reichstag, like the Social Democrats, because they promised stability. And that was what everybody wanted in 1918 and 1919. But there were a ton of challenges on the horizon for Germany, and that would have happened to any new government that was formed there. The first of which is the hyperinflation and, and the bad economic distress that I mentioned earlier. This was mostly felt in the early years of the Weimar Republic, uh, up until about 1923 or so, but it was a terrible, terrible problem. They owed a bunch of reparations to France because of terms they were almost forced into signing uh, with the Treaty of Versailles and, and other agreements that came out of the Paris Peace Conference after World War I. So they owed a lot of money to France, but also coal and coke and other vital resources. They were having to export them and ship them out to people they were previously fighting against in the war, and that was really depressing their economy. Furthermore, it got to the point where wage earners were having to spend their paychecks, there weren't checks, but having to spend their pay immediately on food or the price of bread might have doubled, maybe tripled by the next week. So there was no reason to save. Middle-class people who had made some meager savings during the war, it was almost completely decimated by this hyperinflation after the war. The other issue they had to deal with was the declining birth rate in Germany. Now this had actually started before the First World War and, and was true of a lot of countries in Europe that were going through industrialization. There were fewer German children and this was really worrying a lot of especially right-wing Germans that wanted a strong military to perhaps go back to war. But this wasn't the fault of the Weimar government by any means. And having an enormous amount of young men die in a war doesn't help. But this would be a constant attack lodged against the Weimar government saying that, you know, the kind of sinful society that they're helping to support is lowering the German birth rate and, and other kind of specious claims about why the German birth rate was continuing to decline. The other thing they had to deal with was socialist and communist agitation. 
as I mentioned earlier, the Social Democrats that were kind of helping to lead this government from a, from a center, political center, were always being attacked by the left, by far more revolutionary socialist groups and people who were trying to pursue a worldwide Bolshevik-style communist revolution. This was not something the Social Democrats wanted to get involved with and certainly didn't want to be accused of themselves. So oftentimes they would distance themselves from these far-left revolutionary radicals, but it would still be an attack lodged against them by people on the political right that were either wanting to bring the Kaiser back or at the very least reestablish the military in a, in a robust way. They would constantly be accusing the Social Democrats and other centrist parties of being complicit in communist activity. Another thing the Weimar government had to deal with was this stab-in-the-back myth. This was uh, an elaborate lie told about the Weimar government that was initially established in 1918. And it basically says, these people stabbed Germany in the back. They caused us to lose the First World War by signing these terrible peace agreements and, and signing the armistice and then signing the Treaty at Versailles. And that has undone all of German society when we could have won that war militarily. Now, in truth, that was not going to happen. Even Erich Ludendorff, who was in charge of the military at that time, had explained to the Kaiser that they absolutely needed to negotiate for peace, that there was basically no chance for victory. But that was said behind closed doors, whereas the negotiations at the Paris Peace Conference and then the eventual signing of the Treaty of Versailles were very public. So it was easy to attack the Weimar government as being the people who caused us to lose that war and then owe all of these reparations and so forth and so on. This myth was also used later against Jewish people and communists and a whole bunch of others to say that these are traitors against the state of Germany in some way or another. For the most part, hogwash. Last but not least was a judiciary that was in place both before the First World War and also after the formation of the Weimar government. So you had judges all over Germany whose loyalties might have been to the Kaiser or to the military hierarchy or some other right-wing ideology, but they were still serving in their post for continuity after the war. The Weimar government didn't throw out all the judges, for instance. This would lead to some interesting outcomes with people like Hitler and other far right-wing people who might have tried to topple the government. They were given pretty lenient sentences because even though they'd broken the law in some cases, the judges were somewhat sympathetic to their nationalist and, and right-wing agenda. We'll get to that in a second with Hitler's first failed overthrow of the German government. Now to bring it back to the episode that we're talking about here, episode three, when Chief Inspector Georges Bell talks about this chain reaction and needing to meet these demonstrators in the streets with violence, you find out that that comes from a place of of real concern because there were many attempts to overthrow the Weimar government, especially in its early years when it was a fledgling democracy. The first of which was the Spartacist uprising in 1919. This was a, a started with a general strike amongst workers and, and socialist-leaning workers in Berlin, but it eventually turned into an armed standoff. It lasted from January 5th to January 12th, and it was organized by the Communist Party, or the KPD, led by Karl Liebknecht and Rosen Luxemburg. Later, they were both executed. The uprising ended in violence, though, after paramilitary groups like the Free Corps, which were anti-communist paramilitary groups, were brought into the city of Berlin to put down this uprising violently. Not long later, in March 13th of 1920, there was the Kopp Push. Push is a Swiss-German word that means to knock or to hit or, or strike. 
but it came to be known as like a coup d'etat, like a violent overthrow of the government. So in 1920, uh, this guy Wolfgang Kopp, who is just like a government employee, declared himself chancellor with a bunch of right-wing supporters, both inside the military and some inside the government and some just in private military groups, stormed buildings in the city and, and took over some things, took over the government for a handful of days. Those same left-leaning socialists that uh, took part in the general strike during the Spartacist uprising, some of those same people went on strike again in Berlin and eventually caused this guy, cop to not be able to solidify his power, and he was thrown out. And I, I can't go into every, like, push or attempt to overthrow the Weimar government, but this one is so famous and I hope relevant to the show eventually. So I've got to talk about Hitler's failed beer hall push. This one didn't take place in Berlin. This was 1923, October of 1923 in Munich, Germany, down in southern Germany. Hitler had planned to go to a large beer hall in Bavaria called the Burger Brockheller. Great name. There were three really important government officials that were speaking there that night. It was a man named Gustav Ritter von Kahr, Hans Ritter von Cieser, and Otto von Lassau. They were all three of them going to be in the building in one night. So Hitler and some of his stormtroopers, hundreds of them, marched in and busted into this beer hall in Munich, Germany. He was inspired by Mussolini's, you know, triumphant, I guess, march on Rome, where Mussolini took over the country. So Hitler marches in there. He can't get a word in edgewise, so he jumps up onto a table and, like, fires his gun in the air, gets everyone at his attention, and he basically says, the revolution's already on, you know? Like, he way overplayed his hand. He was like, Bavaria has fallen, a provisional government is already in place, uh, the National Socialist Party, his party, is already in charge, and I've got a machine gun in the lobby, so nobody <laughs> leave. Probably not true, but he was like, this is the thing. I've got it under control, and I'm taking these three important guys into a side room. Takes him into a side room, and he's basically like, you three are going to go along with my plan, and we're going to eventually march to Berlin and take over all of Germany. And they were like, nah, dog, I'm not into whatever you're talking about at all. And he yells at them, and he like said that he had four bullets in his gun. He was going to shoot all three of them and then himself if they couldn't come to some agreement. But anyway, they're like, no, I'm not having it. So Hitler comes back out of that private room into the beer hall, apparently gives a rousing speech. And people in the beer hall, maybe they were drunk. I don't know. Definitely drunk. It's a great plan. They've got to be drunk. But apparently they were swayed by it. People were like, oh, yeah, this guy just, like, loves Germans and just loves Germany. Like, I'm down for that. Like, cool, whatever. You yeah. like Germans? Well, I like Germans. I mean, let's go along with this guy, I guess. So for a little bit, it seems like things are working in his favor. But he's got to attend to some other business. There's, like, a, a scuffle or something happening at a barracks elsewhere in town. So he leaves this beer hall. And, of course, the three important dudes he was there to corner all slip out. So when Hitler gets back, it's like the plan is standing still. Nothing's happening and the three most important guys have left. So he brings in Erich Ludendorff, this like famous war hero from the First World War in Germany. And Ludendorff is like, yeah, tomorrow morning, we're just going to march into this like important building here in Bavaria and, and we'll take that over. And from this symbolic standpoint, I guess, we will take over all of Germany. So the next morning, Hitler and Erich Ludendorff and a bunch of other dudes and his stormtroopers attempt to march through town and they meet with a little bit of police resistance, you know? A couple shots are fired and like 16 National Socialist parties, like 16 Nazis get shot and killed. Four police officers die. Hitler doesn't get shot, but apparently someone he's like linked arms with gets shot and collapses in the street, dislocates his shoulder, and Hitler runs away. Bad look for Hitler. He runs away. He's like on the lam for a couple days until he's eventually arrested. Now, Hitler's not even German. He's an Austrian guy. 
So he's like a foreigner. He could have had a huge sentence, like life in prison. He could have been deported. But because of that conservative judiciary that I mentioned earlier, he ended up having like a 24-day long trial in which he was able to voice his platform. He got nationally famous around Germany because of this failed coup and this arrest. So anyway, he mouths off about his whole spiel, his whole manifesto in court. It makes newspaper headlines all over the country and probably all over the world. And then he's sentenced to a, just a couple months in jail. He only served like five months in jail. He was let out early, I guess for good behavior, and that's when he wrote Mein Kampf. So anyway, I say all this to say there were plenty of people in the 1920s who were ready and willing to topple the Weimar government. Everybody was super concerned, especially about a far-left communist revolution in their country, both because of what happened in Russia, like you discussed last episode, Leslie, and in part because of what was literally happening earlier that decade in Germany. The end of the Weimar years for Germany would, I think, probably give away too much for the show, so I'm not going to say too much about how things came to an end, but I will say that there's a very important election coming up in 1930. But that hasn't happened yet in the show, so I'm just not going to say much more about it. Needless to say, democracy is precious and it's fragile. you got to take care of it. Plenty of folks are willing to tear it down. Oh man, all this talk of government overthrow sure has made me hungry. Leslie, do you know a place? Yeah, let's mosey on down to the Cafe Josie. We can get a bite to eat and talk to some fascists. Oh, uh, let's skip that and have some lecker basin instead. Not only did we just come from the gym and our feet stink, we just ate like garlicky pasta. Yeah, wow, we've been eating garlic. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And we're ready to record. Thank God this is a podcast and not, you know, a sensory, full sensory experience. 5D theater. <laughs> 5D theater. You're nasty. You remember when we went to Universal and we got on that Simpsons ride, which was like a 4D theater? Oh and we all got really sick. Oh my God, I hated that. <laughs> it was awful. I hated that fucking ride. It was terrible. <laughs> I had to keep my eyes open. At first I tried closing my eyes and it made the motion sickness even worse. So I closed, I like opened my eyes and looked down and to my left at just like a corner of the seat that we were strapped into and just focused all my attention on that and like focused my chi to try to keep my lunch inside of my body. Same. I was doing very precise breath work to not bomb all over everyone. We both succeeded. <laughs> we did. Leah too. And she was, she said she felt sick too. How could she not? Fuck. And I was looking around the theater and everyone else was just, they just seemed fine. And the three of us were just like green <laughs> Whatever kind of motion graphics they use in those like those like projection theater motion seat rides can fucking go to hell. Oh, brutal. Hate it. Okay, so Leckerbissen. Leckerbissen is a is a word that I don't know that any Germans really use, but I looked it up on the internet and it means tidbits, and that's exactly what chapter three of every episode of our podcast is. Juicy little morsels that don't fit into any other portion of the show but they were too interesting to leave out. We've done a little research for you and we want to give you those tidbits right now. In this episode, we see Stefan and his parents sitting around the kitchen table listening to the radio. 
And the song that plays on the radio is our tantalizing tidbit for today's episode. And so I'm going to go deep into that song in just a moment. But I want to I want to get your hot take, Dan, on something that happens in this episode. So yeah. we learn that Stefan's parents are deaf, right? But they mm-hmm. have the radio on as if they're listening to it. So my question for you is, do you think that they just are like cranking the radio full volume just to like get Stefan to get in there and sign for them? Or do you think that they have like po- like maybe partial hearing and they just need some blanks filled in for them? Great question. Here's what I thought when I first saw the episode. I assumed that they had left their radio on from earlier in the day. And I, I'm just assuming here, I don't know this about 1929 radio in Berlin, but I assume at some point in the night, there's no more programming. There's no more live radio being done at midnight, let's say. Stefan is in bed because he's going to go to work the next morning, but his parents are up late. I don't know why, but it seemed like it was late at night. And the only reason the radio then started to turn on is there was an emergency broadcast of some kind or some auxiliary broadcast because of the clashes with police that are mentioned with the uh, the KPD, like the Communist Party agitators are distributing these leaflets you can see in the subtitles from the loud radio broadcast as Stefan wakes up. So I assumed that the broadcast was off, but the radio was on. So Stefan wouldn't have heard it because there was nothing being broadcast out of it, but the volume was still max. And then when that news bulletin comes over the radio, kind of as an emergency broadcast, that's what startles him awake. That's how I read this scene. Okay, that's an interesting take. I'll tell you my take. My take is that Stefan goes to bed really, really early and it's like 8.30 and it's just like the normal 8.30 news and his parents really want to listen to it slash have Stefan sign it to them. So they just like crank it up to be annoying to get him to get out of bed and spend some time with them. That's cute. That's cute. I didn't think of it that way, but that's totally a legit read. That could be it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So two hot takes for you on sort of the the context of why they're sitting around the table listening to this radio. But the song that they listen to is interesting in, in and of itself. So like you mentioned, they listen to a broadcast of the news talking about the May Day event that's going to be happening the, the following day. And then the radio plays a song. And actually, after doing a little bit more research on the song, it's more of like what you call a tone poem. So it's a piece of poetry set to music. And so I did a little bit of research on this tone poem, or they're called leaders, I think. I don't know how to pronounce leader. L-E-I-D-E-R. Leiter. Leiter. Caveat, we don't speak German. (laughs) Let's call it leiter. So leiters were a common thing like way back in the 12th and 13th century. So people, I, I think of them as like court gestures would sing a poem while playing music. Ooh, yeah. Okay. I can get that. That's my imagination. That That's what I think of. So anyway, they were the hot shit back in like the 12th and 13th century, but they made a little bit of a comeback. And so the lighter that we hear is when um, it's one of a series of lighters performed by Gustav Mahler. So he would have been the person who wrote the music and another fellow named Frederick Rukert wrote the poem itself. Mahler put the poem to the music to create the song that's played on the radio. Now, is Gustav Mahler, is he German or Austrian? He's Austro-Bohemian. Wow. So he's not actually a contemporary in 1929. He lived 1860 to 1911, so he would have been back during that murky time when things weren't super unified. I wish I could have gone to Bohemia. Yeah, right? It sounds nice. It does sound nice. 
think we'd fit in. Better to think about how nice it would be than to actually be there and like die of cholera. <laughs> Short life expectancy, I'm sure. Yeah, so he um, plays this particular lighter that we hear on the radio is called Um Mitternacht. And again, don't speak German, but it means at midnight, Mitternacht. Oh, how I mean, that's fitting with the scene. Maybe it's late at night. Yeah. Or Stefan goes to bed at 8. I don't know. Could be either one. Well, I am convinced that the directors very intentionally choose the music that they want to highlight in these in these episodes. So I would hope so. Yeah, I think I think that this particular song was chosen for a reason. Um, but a little bit more about Mahler and then I'll I'll read you the poem. Yeah. So Mahler, like I said, was born kind of turn of the century in Bavaria. Um, and he was a famous composer during his time. Um, he was famous, but of course, during Nazi Germany, um, his songs were banned. But following the fall of Nazi Germany around the late 40s, he got super duper popular. So it was like a revitalization of his music and, and probably a lot of music because a oh, lot would have cool. been stifled during Nazi Germany. I would not have guessed that this song was played by a man whose music was banned under the Nazi regime, but that's very telling. That's almost like some very sneaky foreshadowing on the part of the directors here that I wouldn't have picked up on if you hadn't told me it, Leslie. Yeah, I think that I think that they're laying on the foreshadowing pretty pretty thick. Um, so yeah, that's just a little bit of backstory about the song itself and what a lighter is, because I had never, ever, ever heard of that before. The poem itself, it's called At Midnight, and it goes a little something like this. Oh yeah. At midnight I kept watch and looked up to heaven. Not a star in the galaxy smiled on me at midnight. At midnight my thoughts went out to the dark reaches of space. No shining thought brought me comfort at midnight. At midnight I paid heed to the beating of my heart. A single pulse of pain was set alight at midnight. At midnight I fought the battle of mankind, of your afflictions. I could not gain victory by my own strength at midnight. At midnight I gave my strength into thy hands. Lord, over life and death thou keepest watch at midnight. Very nice. Yeah. Make of that what you will. Thank you, Leslie. That was nice. Yeah. The little tidbit or Leckerbeeson that I wanted to talk to you about, Leslie, are some of the locales that get mentioned in this episode. Episode three, more so than any other that I've seen so far, mentioned some specific parts of Berlin. We notice at the beginning of the episode, the train pulls into Kreuzberg. We know that Muti, the woman whose special is to receive a fist, lives in the borough of Wedding. And those two locations get mentioned again when Chief Inspector Zorjabel talks about the different parts of the city that are going to get an increased police presence because of this coming communist demonstration. And so Garion and Bruno, for instance, are going to go to the neighborhood of Kreuzberg, and Bruno says they're basically going there to harass people. And there will also be a police squad sent out to the neighborhood of Wedding. So these are mentioned, I, I guess, are these are referenced in that radio broadcast that you were talking about in Gustav Mahler's song. The, the coming chaos that will happen the next day as these Communist Party act activists and agitators are taking to the streets. So the neighborhood of Wedding, where Garion goes to in this episode to find Muti, and where we see that gross butcher, that like outside butcher scene with the dogs barking, that's a real neighborhood in Berlin. It's northwest of the city center, but it's pretty close to the center of the city. And it was a hardcore communist neighborhood, like a working class, working poor neighborhood and was known to be communist leaning to the point that after the first world war 
people referred to it as Red Wedding. It's the OG Red Wedding. The OG. Before Game of Thrones. Throats may or may not have been slit there. I mean, it looked like there was a lot of blood in that butcher scene. Ugh. So the neighborhood of Wedding actually was the site of quite a few clashes between communist demonstrators and the police. I don't want to give away too much, um, so I might save a little bit of this wedding stuff, this wedding leckerbeesen for episode four. Uh, but needless to say, the directors mentioned those localities on purpose. Another interesting note about wedding is that when the Berlin Wall was being built, you know, in 1961, many years after the uh, events of Babylon Berlin, wedding was right on the border of where East and West Berlin was going to be. So the wall was being built in 1961, and it is said that people in wedding would jump out of their building's windows in an attempt to get over the wall, to get west, to avoid being trapped in East Berlin, because very soon the buildings that were right on the border of where the wall was being built in August of 1961, those buildings were going to be evacuated and their windows were going to be bricked up and, and sealed over. So it's said that people died in wedding, like literally trying to escape communism just a couple decades later. Crazy history of wedding. Kreuzberg, the neighborhood of Kreuzberg, is also, it was a communist stronghold at that time in the late 1920s. It was a very densely populated neighborhood. So at that time, in the early 20th century, it was the smallest geographic borough of Berlin, but had the most people, to the point that it had about 155,000 people per square mile. So if you can imagine, Kreuzberg was an industrial portion of town with like factories and rail yards, but also tightly packed tenements, like people living just shoulder to shoulder. It would have been crazy. Nowadays, in the modern day, uh, Kreuzberg has been joined together with another borough. So it's Frederick Shane Kreuzberg with a hyphen in the middle. Frederick it's like a hyphenated Shane. name. So that's Kreuzberg and Wedding. Now, before the episode closes, Leslie, I want to play a little game that we've been talking about, frankly, since episode one. We've we've cut all references to it until now. But there's a lot of sexual tension in this show, and a lot of main characters have come onto the scene already just three episodes deep. But not a single one of these main characters, anyway, has gotten it on with another main character. We're going to make some predictions here that don't matter. Let's say that. No spoilers are going to happen here. This has almost nothing to do with the plot, I'm sure. I just want to play a little game of conjecture called Will They or Won't They <laughs> Think of this as a Price is Right style game. Yeah, yeah, same. Just like a bunch of like fucking like crazy fanatics in the crowd just be like yeah. Woo! I'm a fireman I'm a veteran let's play will they or won't they so Leslie will they or won't they bone the Armenian and Svetlana mm. I mention them because they are tangentially related she works yeah. at his club but they haven't had any scenes together but they're both good looking people and they're connected in a way we don't know where the plot's going will they or won't they bone Okay, short answer to will they or won't they bone? My answer is no, but I'll do you one better. Round two will be did they or didn't they bone? And my answer would be yes. I think that's fair game. I think if you believe that two characters have boned and you're willing to back it up, pun intended, I will accept that. Okay. So you think they did bone? You think the Armenian Svetlana have a history? Yeah. I like the way I, your mind works. I think it was a quick. It was a quick thing with no fanfare. I think that Svetlana will would probably have slept with him to get something that she needed. Ooh. You know? We don't know much about Svetlana, but I guess I'm willing to believe that. Yeah. Maybe that speaks more about my own biases more so than anything else. 
Dan. Will they or won't they bone Graf and Raff? Ooh, Reinhold Graf and Gary and Raff? Yeah. Okay, I hadn't thought of that yet. That doesn't mean my answer is no. I, ooh. I'm gonna say no only because, I'm gonna say no because Garion's character, it doesn't seem like that's a choice that's even available to him. Like his mind hasn't broadened that far yet, but. Well, I guess I'm thinking of it in a very meta way. I'm thinking about how a showrunner or a show writer or director would, would write the show and would write his character. And I don't see that as an even possible avenue. But that that could just be my closed-mindedness. I don't know. I don't know what goes on on German TV. Who knows? Who knows what Garion's into? He has thrown some curveballs so far. I'm not ruling it out, but because you asked me for the yes, no, I gotta say no. All right, fair enough, fair enough. Okay, Leslie, will they or won't they bone? And this includes the kind of retro bone that okay. you alluded to earlier. Kardakov and Elizabeth Benka. No, that is the question. That's We've the question. never seen them interact in the show, but we know he lived at her house. And we get a scene in this episode where she thinks back to how, you know, how much vitality he had and he could work a crowd and had a lot of charisma. Exactly. And also she talks about how she dreams that he was the one who murdered her husband. So that. That leads me a little astray. That was, okay, That yeah, that's a curveball. She didn't seem to say it like, oh my God, I, I dreamt that he was the one who killed my helmet, her husband. Uh-huh. She says it in such a strange way, even though Kardakov, in a very roundabout way, caused her a bunch of trouble in this episode. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't seem to be angry about it, at least not in thinking back on it while she's drinking some vodka with Garion. If anything, I get the distinct impression they might have boned. What are your thoughts? All right. I am having a lot of thoughts about this. On the one hand, Elizabeth Benke, she's a cool cucumber, you know? And Clearly. I think she's a cool lady and she's a catch. So Kardakov would be lucky. And in my head, I think the answer is they did bone and it was sort of a like angsty, maybe like revenge. I'm trying to hold in my laugh. <laughs> okay, I'm with you. Go on. But then, you know, she's just so cool. She was like, all right, you know, over it. Okay. I think that closes out today's episode of Will They or Won't They? Boom! And that wraps up the episode for the day. Me and Leslie have got to go to bed. <laughs> but not together. <laughs> <laughs> nope. We've got to go. I actually have to drive home from Hole in the Wall Studios. So this is the end of the episode. This episode brought to you by Red Wine, almost certainly. Please rate and review us on whatever it is people do that. Or don't. That's also fine. If you want to tell someone awkwardly at the gym about this podcast, like that would also be cool. Or not. But you never know. I'd say talk about us in the produce aisle. If you want to do anything for us, if you want to do us a favor, talk about us in the produce aisle. If you want to email us, which is something that I don't know if you can do or not, we plan on, in the future at least, reserving the dlpresents at gmail.com so if you want to send an email there we might get it in the future it's like putting out a uh, like a message in a bottle it's like minority report we know it will happen right we we will have a premonition precognition yeah. of you emailing us and then we will retrieve it sometime in the future yeah we're looking forward to it yeah thank you Stuart that email was lovely and I appreciated your constructive criticism on episode 7 <laughs>